Hey, hey, hello. You guys doing all right? Pretty good? Yeah? Okay, okay. Nice, really good, okay. Yeah, I'm doing well, Jerry. Thank you for asking. All right, we, uh, we're just making our way through Ephesians. We are going to finish out Ephesians 2 tonight. Uh, I want to not really recap much of anything, uh, just to say this, that if you remember, if you've been here since day one, uh, Ephesians 1 really focused in on the work of the Trinity in saving humanity, okay? So we really emphasize that this wasn't just something that God came up with along the way, uh, that humanity fell early on, and from the beginning, God had a plan of redemption that he enacted by the will of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son and the working and leading of the Holy Spirit, that this was something that the Trinity did together to draw me to Jesus, to make a way through Jesus for me to be reconciled and to draw you back to uh, the Father, back to God. Uh, it's the Trinity working salvation out. And so, so Paul just opens up in Ephesians 1. He's hitting on the Trinity, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit. They are, uh, they are God, but they are three in one working together uh, for their glory, for the good of humanity is what we see in Ephesians 1. That we see Ephesians 1 close out with Paul saying, in light of that, I want you to know something. And where he lands, where he lands is I want you to know the great power at work in you who believe in Jesus. Those of you who have believed in Jesus, I want you to know there's great power at work in you. And so last week we really outlined uh, that power. And so tonight... Tonight is, we broke out the whiteboard again. I'm sorry. I don't know how long it's going to be here for. Uh, there's really no telling. Uh, we just need to do it. So tonight, I drew this box to try to explain what's going on. This is really going to be helpful, I promise. Uh, when we think of salvation, when we think of being saved, that's a word we throw around. When we think of why did Jesus die on the cross? When I say that, why did Jesus die on the cross? why? And so I think the first thing would just save us, right? And then so then we would just save us from what? Um, and I think we would go one of two ways, depending on your theology, you would go one of two ways. To save us from the wrath of God or to save us from hell so that we can go to heaven. Uh, and you might even throw in there, you might even throw in there to be with God forever, right? You might toss that in there. Um, it's really not about heaven or hell, it's about being with him, right? And so, you know, I wouldn't say anything against that, it's fine. Uh, and, and, and the problem, though, is that when we read Scripture, and then when we read Paul, he, I'm not saying that's wrong at all. I'm not saying that's wrong at all. It, it's, it's absolutely right. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it, is a, it is a condensed, and let me say condensed, it's a simplified answer for why Jesus died on the cross. So if you were to ask Paul, if you were to ask the first century Christians, why did Jesus die on the cross, they would not give you that answer. They might include it in there, but their answer would be much broader than that, right? And so when I say that, that's what this square resembles. If I were to ask a first century Christian, why did Jesus die on the cross? That, the answer would be everything in this box. And we've zeroed in on, on this much of it. That's what this is here. I, that, this, right? You see, that? I didn't, this is a really poor drawing. I'm sorry. Sorry. I even had time to do it. So we would zero in on this. And I'm going to write H or H, heaven or hell, right? Jesus died on the cross to save you, right? So when we start looking at, you know, Ephesians 1, it's about the work of the Trinity and salvation. We start looking at that, and then Paul says, I want you to know something. I want you to know something. 
what he zeroes in on is he explains why Jesus died on the cross is much broader than that, right? So what we hit on last week is the other side of that. That's, in, that's right here. What we hit on last week is if one of the reasons Paul would say that Jesus died on the cross is to give you humanity power over the things that were killing you. Power over your own flesh, your own sin. So we talked about that last week. That we were locked into this battle with our own sin and things we could not free ourselves of. So, so Jesus comes, dies on a cross to break the power of sin, the power of the world, and the power of Satan, right? So we can put those three in there. So you, you approach Paul. Why Jesus on the cross? He's not going to say, save you from heaven or hell. He might throw that in there a little bit, but you're not going to see that most of the time. It's going to be power, right? So I'm going to write that in here. The, this side right here is what we're going to look at tonight. Okay, this side for, for th- this other part of why Jesus would die on the cross, why, why God, why the second member of the Trinity would become a human, take on human form, let humans crucify him, let humans uh, torture him, and, and, and like why God would go about doing something like that. So I want to broaden us beyond, please, I want to broaden us beyond this this talk, I, I, think it's, I think it's fine, it's okay, it's part of it. Uh, but we've been locked in for, I'm, I'm going to say, the past 150 to 200 years in American Christianity, uh, we, we've been very much locked into uh, th- this, this is about heaven and hell. This is all about heaven and hell. This is about where you're going to go when you die. What's going to happen when you die? What's going to happen when you die? really has nothing to do with life now. It's really about when you die. Um, and so what we, what, what we talk and we present salvation to our children. We present salvation to kids. We present salvation in a mass. uh, Billy Graham, right? So when we do mass trying to get people saved, trying to get people saved, what do we do? Well, we run to hell and we say, man, if you don't get saved, hell awaits you. And it's not, it's not wrong. It's not incorrect, right? But it's this very, what's the way we can get people saved? Oh, we can tell them about this crazy, crazy, terrible experience, right? And that's going to, catapult them into the love of God and it really doesn't it might get salvation and it might get them to say a prayer it might get them to want to go to heaven when they die but it really doesn't engender love of God it doesn't engender the pursuit of God it doesn't engender obedience to his will because it's beautiful and good it engenders I just don't want to go burn when I die right and so again it's not wrong but I want, to, I want to expand this a bit. I want to look at the, I want to look at the text. Why, like, why doesn't Jesus going around, why isn't that Jesus' tactic? Why isn't it the, the tactic of Jesus to go to every city and say, watch out. You're going you're gonna to burn in hell if you don't follow me. Like, why doesn't he say that to the rich young ruler? Why doesn't, when the rich young ruler comes and says, what does it take to have eternal life? Why doesn't Jesus immediately respond with, it takes you trusting in me, I'll lead you in a prayer, and you won't go to hell. Why doesn't he do that? Why don't we ever see that? Why don't we see that in the tactics of Paul? Right? Because there's something larger and bigger that we need to, we need to drink in. We need to, we need to look at it, okay? And so, that's why I put it in here. It's not wrong, right? It's not wrong. It's just reductionistic. It's, it's reducing down to what are people going to get the most. And I want to show you. As I read this text... Let's just read it, right? So Ephesians 2 is, what did Jesus do when he died on the cross? What happened for us? 1 through 10 was power over the flesh, the world, and the demonic. We saw that. So that we might walk in life, in obedience. And then 11 to 20, just, just read it. Let's just read it. Try not to get lost. I'm going to try not to get lost, okay? I'm going to try. 
You try. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right? So I just, honest, it only took me like four verses to check out. Like we got into, therefore remember that you at one time were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Right? I got there and I'm like, what? Are you talking, what? Right, so the reason this is so foreign to us, the reason this is so foreign to us is because typically in the United States, in American evangelicalism, we do not talk about what God is doing in history. We typically talk about Jesus and we place him specifically in the context of why did Jesus die on the cross? To save me from heaven or hell. We don't talk about the work of God in history. We just don't bring it up. And when we try to look at verses about it, it's like, what the heck are you talking about, man? And then we just sort of skip along. And we look for something that's like, be nice to each other. Right? Be humble. Give things away. Right? And it's like, oh, I got that. That makes sense. And so, uh, the way that I want to hash this out, the way that I want to really look at what's going on here and make this apply to us, uh, and and really make this land for us, is I want to look at this thing that we're going to see uh, from Genesis to Revelation, and honestly, if you come here more, if, if you come here for like a month and a half, you're going to see this like four times, okay? You honestly are. Uh, something that I consistently want to do is I want to draw us into and show how the New Testament connects to the Old Testament. Why is the first three quarters of the book, what's it about? What's that all about, right? Like, I want to connect that for us so that we are caught up in that. And we see the beauty of what God's doing in history. And we see the beauty of why that 11 through 20 is really so beautiful and so empowering and so awesome and so comforting. And it really shows the faithfulness of God, right? Instead of it being like, what? And we move along. So I wanna, I'm just going to paint something real quick from Genesis to Revelation. I promise it's not going to take forever. It's not going to take forever. You've probably seen half of this before anyway. So, but the more we look at it, the better. The better this is going to be. Okay, so let's get started, right? And I'm learning how to write with this up here. So we're getting better. Can you see? Blake, you good? Okay. All right. All right, so let's get started. I want to show you something. I just want to show you 
how this thing plays out. And then I think after this, we're going to read that again. And I think it's going to, I think it's going to land a bit. It's going to make a little more sense, right? Okay. So, right. So we've talked about this. Genesis 1, we get uh, the creation of humanity that culminates in God saying these words. Uh, he blessed them. God said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, have sex, make babies, fill the earth and subdue it, and then bring the kingdom of God to the earth. So he said this, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and everything that creeps on the ground. The idea being, you are blessed. Now be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with all these little images of God and bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Right? Be blessed, be fruitful and multiply. And so we get in Genesis 2 the rejection of that. We get the rejection of that blessing, of that um, relationship with God that would culminate in His image filling the earth. We reject that. And then so what we get from Genesis basically uh, three and a half to verse 8, so I'm going to write this out just so we're, so we're clear. So we get Genesis, let's just write 4 to 8. What we get is the playing out of that, that choice. We get the playing out of that choice. So we rejected the relationship that God offered to us. We said, that's a cool blessing to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. We don't really want to do that. And so we get from 4 to 8, the fallout of that blessing. And what it is, Cain kills Abel. The line of Cain is sort of really weird with the guy that kills little boys for no reason. It's Lemic. Okay, and then we move on um, and we get some really cool happy stories like Noah and his ark and the drowning of the entire world, right? So we get that really fantastic story. And so that God looks at the planet and says, uh, he looks at the planet and says that violence has gotten so bad that I'm grieved that I made humanity. And he picks Noah and his family and then drowns the rest of the world right? It's, it's incredible. It's, it's the most ridiculous story I think we're going to see in the Bible, but you get that, that God's response to the wickedness, God's response to men falling away and producing violence was to choose this one man and basically start over, start over, right? So then we get Genesis 4 to 8 is the fallout. We're getting all these stories of what does humanity look like when it turns from God. We get Noah being a righteous man. God pulls him, drowns the world. And then we get again in Genesis 9, oddly enough, the same words. God comes to Noah, blessed him, said to him, be fruitful, multiply. Right, that same thing. This is the only thing we've seen, the only blessing we've seen. We've seen the blessing, the refusal of the blessing got the curse. We see the blessing, and then once again, so the, to the reader, you're going to look at that and say, what are they going to do? They should, they're going to follow God. And it's going to be this happy story, right? Like he, he just drowned everybody. He's got this righteous man. It's going to be this awesome story. Everything's going to play out. They're going to plant a vineyard. Nobody's going to get drunk. Wrong. Noah planted a vineyard and got drunk off of his own wine and, and then laid around naked for his kids to come and watch, right? So we're seeing already like, uh, what's going on here? This is weird. Or this is really weird. Okay, so we're seeing that whatever happened, whatever happened here that caused this has not been fixed. It has not been fixed. So he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then right off the bat, we're like, did it, did it work? And it's like, no, it didn't. So we get this hilarious story in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, right? Have most of you read that story and been like, what is this? What is going on? Like, what is this? 
This is what that story is about. We've seen be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. No, I don't want to do that. The fallout. Okay, we're going to start over. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And then it says in Genesis 11, so they gather together to make a name for themselves, and they try to build a tower to heaven. And it's like, oh my God, you got one thing. Literally, it's not. It's just have sex and make babies and then spread out over the earth. And bring the glory of God to the earth in obedience to him. And they're like, no, we really want to gather together and make a really tall building. (laughs) Right? I want to make a tall. So really, Genesis 11 is them saying it's the refusal of the blessing. It's, It's no, we don't want to fill the earth and bring the glory of God to the earth and be the image of God on the earth so that the earth and everything goes on the earth glorifies God. We want to come together and make a name for ourselves. We want our glory, not God's glory. We want to do this our way, not his way. So we're just seeing lodged in the heart of humanity, even in the line of Noah, is the exact same thing. So Genesis 11, what happens? He, sa- he looks at them and he says, nothing that they want to do will be too difficult for them. And we're looking at that and we're like, God doesn't like unity now. He doesn't like people working together. And so he confuses their language and forces them to fill the earth. But what we're really seeing is that what happens there is if God doesn't separate them, Genesis 4 to 8 plays out over again. His grace on them was like, separate, separate. When you gather together to make a name for yourself, you become so violent. You become so violent that I've got to flood the earth. So he pushes them out. So we get the confusion of tongues, the creation of nations. Okay, watch this. It's super beautiful, right? This is where we're going to start getting traction. In the very next chapter, Genesis 12, uh, there might be some stuff on the screen. Don't feel like you've got to read it. I'm just putting some text up there so you can see where I'm coming from. I'm not going to unpack them. As we're talking, you'll sort of see them play out from now on. Genesis 12. So we're seeing the blessing, the refusal of the blessing, and the curse that follows. We're seeing the same blessing, the refusal of the blessing, and the curse that follows. Genesis 12, we get that word again. Blessing. God comes to a guy named Abram and he says, I want to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a nation from you, and then I'm going to use that nation to bless all nations. Okay? So we got in Genesis 11, how do I write this? Nations? Should I have written it that way? No. No, 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 no. This is going to mess this up. We'll just get rid of that. I'll just tell you. Genesis 11, we get the creation of nations, God forcing people to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then we get in Genesis 12, okay, but what we've seen is there's something going on here. The the problem isn't fixed. The problem isn't fixed. Whatever it was here that caused this is still here and caused this. And them not speaking the same language doesn't fix that. It just slows down how quickly they can kill each other. And how quickly they can take advantage of each other. And how quickly violence is going to spread. Just confuse them a bit. Right? So you get in Genesis 11, the creation of nations. And then the very next step in Genesis 12 is this beautiful thing. I'm going to take this one man. And from him, I'm going to make a nation. And then I'm going to use that nation to gather all the nations back to myself. 
Okay, so the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is the playing out of Genesis 12. The rest of the Bible is God playing out a promise he made to Abram, who he then names Abraham. He took a man who could not have children, whose wife was barren, who was 99 years old, and he said, I'm going to give you a son, and from that son I'm going to make a nation, and I'm going to use that nation to bless the world. Okay, so then we get that, right? And then we think, just like we thought right here, we think, this is sweet. Here come the Israelites. The Israelites get tucked away in Egypt after 400 years. Abraham, the promise made to Abraham to make a nation happens. And here comes Moses in, right? Remember the prince of Egypt, right? Remember that? Moses comes in says, let my people go, and the nation of Israel is birthed out of Egypt, and God brings them to the land that he promised to Abraham, brings them to that land, they occupy that land, and what do you think is about to happen? This nation is about to bless all other nations, and somehow what happened here and here is going to get fixed. But what do you see in the life of Israel? What you see in the life of Israel is them taking advantage of others and them placing themselves on a pedestal above every other nation. And so I want to, I want to and, and this is the way we're going to recap this. Are you all familiar with the book of Jonah? Right, you know how weird the book of Jonah is? It's super weird, right? The book of Jonah, I'm going to put this really simply. The book of Jonah is a snapshot of Israel and their heart, Okay? I want to show you what I mean. So in this section, I'm just going to write Jonah. And and because I can't give you the history, I can't give you, I just can't do it. I can't give you the history of Israel. But I I want to give you a snapshot that Jonah, while it's a weird story and theologians have always tried to put, is he a prophet? Is this a history book? What's up with the fish? What's up with Jonah? He's a little baby. Like, okay, so if you know the story of Jonah, not the one you heard when you were a little kid, the one that's actually in the Bible, the, that story is ridiculous, right? Because God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to, this is the first prophet that doesn't prophesy in Israel. He goes to another nation. So we're seeing, oh, is this the playing out of the promise to Abraham? Is this the playing out of God gathering the nations back to himself? So he goes to Jonah. He's like, Jonah, I want you to go to Assyria. I want you to go to the capital of Assyria, to Nineveh. And I want you to preach to them uh, that they are they are wicked and they need to repent. Uh, and, and if they don't repent, that I'm going to destroy that country. I'm going to destroy them all. And Jonah says, no, I know what you're going to do. I'm going to get there. They're going to repent and you're not going to destroy them. Jonah wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He wanted Assyria to be destroyed because Assyria is this growing nation. It's the first nation that we ever see that goes about conquering other nations. So Assyria is growing very strong and very large right next to Israel, and they're very vicious people. They're very vicious people. Historically, some of the most vicious people in in history. And so we've got Assyria growing. Israel's getting a little scared, hoping God destroys them so they don't come and attack Israel. And God comes to Jonah and says, go to Assyria and, and preach repentance. And, and Jonah says, uh, no. And so he hops on a boat and he goes out to sea thinking God's not there. God turns up a storm on the sea and, and the people on the boat are like, God is judging us. And Jonah's like, no, he's judging me. Just throw me overboard and you'll be fine. It's like, sweet. They toss him overboard 
and the fish comes, right? The fish comes and gets him and spits him out on land, and he walks to Nineveh. He walks three days into the city. He preaches, and everyone in the city repents up to the king. Uh, the, the king of Nineveh repents, and then Jonah walks out of the city, and it says he sits on a hill, and he says, God, I knew you were gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, and that if I preach to them, they would repent, and that's exactly what you did. And he sits there and he pouts. That, the, the book of Jonah in the Bible is, is a story depicting Israel's inability to fulfill the covenant to Abraham. That over and over and over, they consistently place themselves on a pedestal they will not interact with the nations. They will not draw the nations to themselves. And so as you read the Old Testament, what you're going to see over and over is the prophets coming to Israel and saying, you're wicked, you're wicked. But there is someone coming to fix the wickedness and not just yours, but the whole world's. So we see slowly through the prophets that someone is coming and that there will be someone coming from the line of Abraham to bless the world. So that this has always been about the gathering of the nations. So you read the Old Testament, and I'm sure, and I, I did this too, I would read the Old Testament, and I'm like, what's up with Israel being the people of God? Why did they get to be the people of God? Why are they the chosen people? And what do they have to do with anything now? And the answer to that is this, that God chose a nation to use that nation to draw nations to himself, that he loves all people and is drawing them to himself. And the method he went about doing that was the nation of Israel, was a, co a, a covenant with a man named Abram, and he's faithful to fulfill it. So then what do we get? We get this guy named Jesus who comes along and in Matthew 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which a lot of people believe, and I think I fall into this camp, that this is probably his most famous sermon. It's probably a sermon that he preaches everywhere that he goes. It's probably like this, this little backpack sermon uh, that he goes around, um, and that's why it has such a place in the book of Matthew. That's why you see it repeated in the book of Luke, um, that this is, a, this is a sermon that Jesus went around, and he opens the sermon with these lines talking to the Jewish nation, you were supposed to be a light to the world. You were supposed to be a city on a hill. You were supposed to be the salt of the earth. But once the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it to be trampled underfoot by men? And basically saying, you were created for this purpose. You were made a nation to bless nations. And what did you do? You did not bless any nation. And so here comes Jesus saying, Israel did not do, Israel is not the answer to this problem and this problem and the problem in us. Jesus comes along and says, I'm the answer to that problem. There are things holding you down. And so we hit on that last week. There are things, the power of sin. That's what this was. That's what this was. It was the power of sin that away from God, something else exercised power over us. Sin, Satan in the demonic realm and the world in which we lived exercised power over us to draw us from God. And nothing was powerful enough to fix that than God himself, than the blood of God himself. So he comes, and by his blood and our faith in him, we are associated with him in death. And so that Jesus got the death that we deserved, 
and we are clothed in his life. We are clothed in his perfect works life. We're clothed in that so that Jesus sees us and God declares us righteous, not because of our own works, not because I'm a good guy. I'm a terrible guy who's been declared righteous by God because of the work of Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, that's what's happened to you. You've been declared righteous by God, that he sees you as righteous in his sight. And in that, in Christ, we've been redeemed, reconciled, and we've been delivered from the powers at work against us, right? So Paul says, you've got to get that. You've got to get that. All right, so let's finish the story. What's going on with Jesus? Let's look at this. All right, so we get Jesus comes, and then... At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, right? So at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, y'all know about the Great Commission, right? You know what the Great Commission is. Um, in, in the Great Commission, uh, he's been crucified, resurrected, he's about to leave, and he comes to his disciples and he says, um, all authority on heaven and earth, right, power, all authority on heaven and earth, the power that was killing mankind has now been given to me. I became a human and rescued you. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. The powers that work against you don't matter anymore. The, the, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? It's the playing out of this. It's the playing out of this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to be with you to the end of the age, right? So we see him say that. Go to the nations. Go to the nations. This is about the nations. This is about the gathering of all nations to the family of God. This is not about the Jews. This is not about the chosen people. This is about all nations being gathered together under the family of God to fix what happened here. Genesis 12 is just a step in that, but it's seeing him going to go this direction. So we get Matthew 28, the Great Commission. All authority. You have all power. Nothing is held against you now. Now what do I do in light of my not being under the power of sin, death, the devil, the world? What do I do now? It's not go get a boat and go uh, get some nice hobbies. It's go and do what God has been doing in history. Gathering all nations to himself. How do you go about doing that? By preaching the gospel. The work that Jesus has done is good for all men. It's not just good for Jews, right? Okay, so then what do we get? In, uh, so we get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are all gospels about Jesus. So at the end of the gospels, we get this thing, go make disciples of all nations. Are you familiar with the book of Acts? Right? The book of Acts is the works of the church. After Jesus leaves, what do his followers do? That's what the, books of, the book of Acts is. So let's go to the book of Acts. And we see in Acts In Acts 1, what happens in Acts 1? Well, you see, it's sort of the end of the Gospels again. And and you see, right before Jesus goes off to heaven, the the disciples come to him and they say, they say, Jesus, are you, uh, I'm paraphrasing, are you going to make Israel awesome again now? Right, because they think that the Messiah is coming to fulfill all of the promises made to Israel by the prophets, which is you're, you're, you're in wickedness now, but we're going to come and rescue you. All the nations are going to be gathered to you. Um, there's going to be a grain in your, in, in your uh, silos. There's going to be a fresh wine in your vats. And so there's all these promises made to the nation of Israel about what happens when the Messiah comes. And so what the Jews think when they see Jesus is this is the guy who's going to make us the greatest nation on earth again because there was a time early on when Israel was a great nation. And so they see Jesus and the disciples see him and they're thinking, Messiah, this is the guy that's going to rescue us. This is the guy that's going to make Israel awesome again. And so he does his little thing, dies on the cross, resurrected. So when he dies on the cross, they're like, oh God, it's not the guy. And they run off. And then he comes back to life and he like goes and grabs them again, right? So he resurrects three days later, and he's going, and he's like, hey, 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 you were a little confused. You were a little confused. 
But like, I've been resurrected, and you're sort of missing the story, but we're gonna, it's going to be okay. We're going to get there. And then so he's gathering back together, and then Peter and John come up to him, and they're like, hey, uh, yeah, you're going to, is, is now the time? And so Jesus, super patient guy, super patient guy, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, right? But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and what? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's in Israel, in Judea, that's in Israel, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What does Jesus say again to his apostles? Hey, it's not about Israel. This is about this, the gathering of the nations to the Father, the gathering of all nations to the Father. And so we get playing out that very thing. Here we go, Acts 2, right? So look, you see how close we're getting to the end? Right, we're getting there. Acts 2, what happens? All the apostles are super confused. They go up into a room and they pray. If you know the story, a wind comes through, tongues of fire rest on them, and they begin to preach. And everyone in the city can hear them in their own language. Tongues, right? Can hear them in their own tongue. And so you get the list of all these different nations. And it literally says in Acts 2, it says this. It says that men, devout men, were gathered in Jerusalem from every nation under the heavens. And they begin to preach and everyone hears the sermon in their own language. What is that? It's the reversal of this. It's the reversal of the creation of nations. Right? So we saw in Genesis 11 the creation of nations. So he like sent them out and then he said, okay, but that's not it. I'm going to make a nation. I'm going to bring you back together. So we get the work of Jesus and him saying, hey, 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 I'm going to bring you back together again. And then he says, but I'm not going to bring you back together just through me. I'm going to send my apostles to tell the story of the work that I did to draw the nations back together. And they're super confused. Are you going to make Israel awesome again? He's like, no, 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 no. The Spirit's going to come and you're going to receive power. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world, right? And, and so they go out and they're like, I don't even know what that means and they start praying and then they start preaching and it's in everyone else's tongue it's the reversal of genesis 11 it's god saying i'm still at work i'm still at work drawing the people of god together i'm drawing nations back to myself that's what i'm doing and so you're getting out in acts the move the, the the expansion of the people of god from the jews to every nation and so you're going to see in the book of acts them going to asia minor them going to North Africa. So the Ethiopian eunuch, right? You're getting, this, you're getting Christianity go to Africa. You're getting Christianity go to Asia Minor. You're getting Christianity move west to Italy. You're getting Christianity move up into like Macedonia, right? So you're getting the expansion to the ends of the earth, right? This is the playing out. God is faithful to do in Genesis 12 what he's always been doing. Jesus was a part of this story. He's the one that makes it happen. We are part of this story here to make it, to become the people of God, to become the people of God on mission for the people of God, right? Beautiful, at the, at the very end of the story. I left some room, um, but it's okay. This is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts up to the present day. That that's what's been going on in the world. The expansion of Christianity up until today. So then we get Revelation 7, right? And I'm just going to read Revelation 7 just because it's so awesome. So... John gets a glimpse into the end of the story. What does Revelation 7 say? Uh, Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples 
and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right? At the end, people gather around and praise God that He was faithful to do this. That He was faithful to do that. And what you see is they praise God because He said, I'm going to gather all nations to Myself. And what do you see in Revelation 7? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group. There are members from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group gathered around the throne, right? So when we view Jesus, we must view Him through the lens of Genesis 12. We must view Him through the lens that Jesus is the vehicle. Jesus was the, the avenue by which God redeemed all of humanity by drawing them together into one family underneath God the Father. We have to view the work of Jesus through this lens. And so I, 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 I'm, I'm going to read this again and then I'm going to make a few points. I want to read Ephesians again. I want to see if we sort of grab on uh, to Ephesians um, as, since we looked at that. And then I just want to make a few applications, right? I'm going I'm to unpack it as we go and, and use this to unpack it. Uh, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. A Gentile is just a non-Jewish person. Why were they called the circumcision and the uncircumcision? Circumcision, don't ask me why. I could give you some weird reasons that might be true, but I don't know. Circumcision was the sign given to Abraham that they were in the people of God. I would have come up with something different honestly, but I'm not God. So the Jews called themselves the circumcision, and what they're saying is, we are the people of God who are in covenant with God, and no one else is. We are the only people who have a relationship with God. And they weren't wrong in saying that. They were just jerks about it. Okay, they weren't wrong in saying that. The only people that God had come and made covenants to was Israel at that time. They were the only people. The only people that were the people of God were the Israelites. But it wasn't just because he liked them better. No, he said, you're the most stubborn and stiff-necked people I know, and I'm going to use you to accomplish my work because I'm gracious and good and I'm really just crazy, right? So, so he uses Israel for that means. He said, remember that one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you non-Jewish people, uh, called the uncircumcision what's called the circumcision, which is just made in the flesh by hands. It's really not powerful to do anything. So th- remember that. Remember that you were at that time, before Jesus, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were alienated from the nation of Israel. You were alienated, um, you were in strangers to the covenants of promise. So that, that Israel had had all these promises about how God was going to work, how God was going to be faithful how God was going to give, what God was going to do to, to reconcile people. They had, he had made all these promises, and what he's saying is everyone else was not a part of those promises. So you Gentiles in the flesh, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. Those are super strong words. You who were not Israel were hopeless. You had no hope. You were without God. There was nothing you could do. But God, right? And he gets this in this but God thing. We'll get there. Without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you who were not a part of Israel, you were not a part of the covenants, you were not a part of the promises, you were not about the movement of God in the world, you who were once far off, you've been brought near. You've been made a part of this family. 
You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In the temple in Israel, there was a wall that separated where Jewish people could go and where non-Jewish people would go. Jewish people would go in the temple and worship God and interact with the presence of God. Non-Jewish people had to stand outside and hang out where nothing was really going on. This is the court of the Gentiles. I don't even know what you would do there. You just sort of hang out. Is the court of the gen- so the dividing wall has been broken down. So there's nothing that separates Jewish people from non-Jewish people anymore. All are part of the family of God. All nations can now be a part of the family of God. Um, and he did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In the commandments given by God to Moses, there were specific commands about what you could eat, what you could not eat, and who you could eat with. So what he's saying is there was even laws that separated Jews from Gentiles, and that has come to an end because there is no need for them anymore that Jesus is recognized reconciled all people together by the blood, right? So uh, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in order he might create in himself one new man. So that there's one, and when he says new man, he means one new body, one new group. So one new man in place of the two, in place of Jews and Gentiles, um, and uh, making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God. So that this family is being brought together, so that at the end of Revelation, you've got this one family of God, and then God comes to do away with all evil, all crying, all pain, all tears, and and then this people of God is brought together to fully live with their God. You read Revelation 21, you get him saying, heaven comes to earth and God says, yes, God says, to, um, to, says to everybody, he says to John right there, um, th- they will be my people and I will be their God. And I will dwell with them forever. And so you're seeing, you're seeing God come to earth and make earth heaven. And when he comes to make earth heaven, he comes and says, I'm going to dwell with my people. They will be my people and I will be their God and I will wipe away every tear from their eye. And there will be no crying, there will be no pain, there will be no tears. The former things have passed away. Behold, new things are coming. All right, so the, the, the peace between God and man has been made. Um, and he came and he preached. So Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far off. Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews, that Jesus came, and even though the Jews were the people of God, they still had this and this. They still had sin, the world, and Satan at work against them. They were still evil, just like everybody else, and he came and he preached peace to them. He said, in me and in my work and in my blood, you can be forgiven Jew, you can be forgiven Gentile, and we're going to become one family underneath the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So you're built on the work of Israel. You're built on that. You're, you're one family, but you're built on the work of God in history. Um, fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, that Jesus, without Jesus, everything falls apart. But with Jesus, this whole thing is held together. He's the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God, for God by the Spirit. Okay. Do you feel like that makes a bit more sense now? Maybe a little. It's still a ton. But can you follow what he's saying there? Can you see that how for Paul, the work of Jesus is to provide power to the individual, but to create, we're just going to say people, but to create 
a people of God. This is not working. That's fine. How often does the way that we view the work of Jesus have anything to do with someone else? That's why I heard this growing up. If you were the only person on earth, Jesus would come and die for you so you could go to heaven. And I think that's really just saying God really loves you, which is totally right. But it says it in such a way that it negates all of this. Because this is not about you going to heaven. This is about God being glorified by reconciling all people to himself, by creating a people of God. And so I want to apply it in this way. There is no such thing, there is no such thing as merely a personal relationship to God. There is such thing as a personal relationship to God, but there's no such thing as merely a personal relationship to God. This is what I mean by that. You cannot accept the Father while at the same time reject His family. Does that make sense? You can't, and this is how Augustine said it, you cannot have God as your Father without at the same time having the church as your mother. You cannot. Because it negates all that God has been doing for the last friggin' 5,000 years, man. So, so uh, what does this mean? What I'm saying is, if we only interact with God at a personal level, that this is really about me and Jesus, that this is really about, like, I don't really, I'm, I'm, in, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? Um, if you really think the only time you're close to God is in a tree stand or on a lake while you're fishing, and you don't really need to go to church, that you can find God on your own, okay, well, you, you can, but you can't find the God of the Bible that way. So that the work of God has been to draw you into a family. When you were baptized, okay, I'm going to stop right. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm really speaking to those of you who call yourself Christians and who have submitted everything to Jesus. Okay, if you're still wrestling with is Jesus who he says he was, if you're wrestling with that, uh, uh, that's, what I'm saying now is very secondary. It's primary that you wrestle with was Jesus who he said he was. Tonight I'm really just wanting to hit people who call themselves Christians, who say they believe in Jesus and have submitted to him. If that is you, if that is you, you cannot merely approach your relationship to God as something that has only to do with you and God. You cannot, you cannot, uh, I'm just going to stick to my notes or I'm just going to go off on a tangent on you. Corporate worship is equally as important as private devotion. Corporate worship Communal worship is just, just as important. It's not a little bit less. It's equally as important. You cannot have a vibrant relationship with God. Okay, we're going to have to hash this out. You cannot have a vibrant relationship with God outside of the local church. You cannot have a vibrant relationship with God outside of the local church. Let me unpack that. I understand there's extenuating times and circumstances and all that. The will of God for your life is that you are plugged in and submitted to the leadership, the biblical leadership, biblical elders of a local church. And, and what I'm really landing on here is a few things. 
I think what we get in college, and I think the reason we get it is because we have friends that are going different places and we want to go to church with our friends. Uh, you cannot church hop to get spiritually fed from all these different places and just go there for the preaching because you like the worship or you like the preacher or whatever. That's, that, that's, so, that's so minimal in what God has for you. God has for you to be blessed by submission to a group of people and the leadership of a local church. That outside of that, you will not be able to walk in His will. You will not be able to experience the freedom of life that comes with being a part of a communal body. It's like taking a fish out of water. It's like taking a fish out of water and wondering why the fish is drowning. You cannot operate outside of the family because what you're saying is, I accept you, God, as my Father, but I reject your people. It's like if you, if you have siblings and you go to your mom and dad and you're like, I'm cool with you guys being my parents, but that other person that you bore, they suck. And I am not about to be hanging out with them. So I'll come and have dinner, but they're not eating with me. Right? And your parents would look at you and they would probably slap you or punch you. They, they would be like, what the heck are you talking about, man? But that's the way we approach, that's the way we, and when I say the local church, what I mean is a local body with elders, with elders who are governing the church under the biblical method of the local church. So you can't just hop around. You can't just hop around. I'm asking you from my heart, from my heart, find a church in this city, whether it's this one or not, and plug in, go to the leadership and say, if I'm a student, how would you, like, what do you have set up for me to be discipled in this, in, in, in this city? How, how would you like to take my giftings, how would you like to take my problems and work them out and deal with them? What avenue would you do that on? And that you submit to the way that they do church and you would submit to the governing of their leadership and you would submit to the people in that church to worship with them, to serve alongside of them for the good of you and for the good of this city. From my heart, I'm asking you, submit to a church. And you can go check out other places with your friends. That's fine. But have your home, have your body that you submit to the people there and the leadership. And like I said, I'm not plugging for this church. I'm not plugging for this church. Do I want you to be here? Of course I do. But if we're not doing things the way you like, that's fine. That's fine. But you've got to find a place where you are. You can't be a podcast Christian. That's something huge now. That I get spiritually fed by the greatest teachers on the planet. No. No, I love podcasts also. But if that is the way in which you are approaching God communally, you're not approaching God communally. You are rejecting all of this. You're rejecting his family. You're rejecting how he can use you and mold you into who he wants you to be by just saying sermons are going to fix me as I listen to him online. And then another thing that I've seen since I've been in, since I went to college here, so I've been in this town a while. I've, I mean, I've been where you've at. I used to like go around and church hop and do all this stuff, right? You can't be a rogue Christian either. I think what I see now is so many people have been hurt by the church and they've been hurt uh, and they just disagree with them, some things that the church does. And so they're like, okay, well, I'm just going to go fulfill the Great Commission on my own. I'm just going to go do this on my own. And so they'll go knock on doors in the, in, the, uh, in the dorms. Or they'll go 
do whatever they're going to do to fulfill the Great Commission. You can not be a rogue Christian and have a vibrant walk with the Lord. There's this huge aspect. There's this other part of what God's doing in history that he wants you to be a part of and he wants you to submit to because it's difficult and because it will mold you. Doesn't mean you have to do everything that a church does, but if you've rejected it completely for whatever reason, you've got to find your way back in. Um, and this other one, I say this very sincerely. I, some of you have been hurt by the church. You've been hurt by the leadership of a church. And so when I say submit to the leadership, you're like, you want to give me the bird and walk out. Like, I get that. I've been hurt by the church too. I've been hurt bad by the church. Like, I get that. I understand that. I've had my heart broken by the leadership of a church and wanted to never be a part of a church again. Okay, I get that. But some way and somehow, you have to bring those grievances to the Lord, forgive the people that have offended you, and try again. And realize that you might get hurt again. But the blood of Jesus covers their offenses and your offenses and you approach it with forgiveness and mercy and grace. So I get that the church can hurt you. We are broken people trying to work on other broken people. Right? No. But to separate yourself and do this rogue thing or I'm spiritual but I'm not religious or whatever that is, that's fine, but you're not going to be interacting with the Father in heaven who is working to gather all nations to himself. And so, the, uh, before we jump into this next one, I want to say one thing. This is sort of theological, not really, it's kind of practical. When I, I still interact with this question a little bit. I know a lot of you have interacted with the question where you want to know what about all the other people on the planet? What about the tribes in Africa? What about the people who've never heard of Jesus? What about those people? And I think that definitely comes from a heart of compassion when you want to see people come to know Jesus and the life that that brings. But there's something in you that's like, ah, there's something off here. What about those people? What if they never hear? What about that? Okay, I want to just say, look at this story. I want you to say, look at this story and realize that Christianity, and, 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 and part of you thinks the only reason you believe in Jesus is because you grew up in the West and you grew up in America where people talk about Jesus. Keep in mind that Christianity is a Middle Eastern religion and there were Christians in Asia before there were Christians in America. There were Christians in Africa before there were Christians in America. There were Christians in, in Eastern and Western Europe before there were Christians in America. Okay, we're Johnny-come-latelys. There were Christians in those places before America existed. And so for you to think that the only reason you're a Christian is because you're American and that no other people really have access to him and what about them and God's not good if he doesn't do something. Look, look, God's been doing something. God's been doing something. He cares about these people more than you do. And if you really do have a heart of compassion for them, then be about the nations. Let's do it. God is going to empower you by the Holy Spirit. He's already shown that in Acts. He's going to empower you by the Spirit to reach the nations. So if you really do have a heart for the nations, jump on board with the nation. Like, jump on board with that. Go try to reach these other people groups because what's going to happen is in Revelation 7, the people groups are going to gather around the throne and worship God. Every, someone from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group is going to gather around the throne and worship Him. And so for us to think that we're a little more compassionate about God because we think about tribal Africa, no, wrong. He's way more compassionate than you and he has a heart to reach him and he wants to use you to do it so you feel the joy of being a part of a 
a 10,000-year-old story. Like, come on, let's get into it and not play and make a victim out of everybody. This is what Jesus has been about. This is what God has been about. And this is what Jesus was about. So part of it is trusting the Spirit and the faithfulness of God. And then the last thing. The last thing. Read that last sentence in in chapter 2. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We often emphasize that you as an individual have the Holy Spirit in you. And we do that at the cost of emphasizing that more often in the Bible, it talks about the Spirit dwelling among us as a temple. That The way Peter puts it is that we're living stones who are making a temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. And while the Holy Spirit dwells in me, it's more often mentioned that He dwells in us. And that you must, being a brick built into the temple of God, you must, must, must seek reconciliation from and for your brothers and sisters in this body. There are people for whom Christ died in this room and at that school that you need to seek reconciliation with because if you do not, you hinder the work of the Spirit in this room and in your life. The Gospel demands that we administer the blood of Jesus over our sins and the sins of our brothers. And so that if we really begin to interact on a communal level with God the Father, the first thing He's going to do is say, reconcile with your brother. He even says, don't bring a gift. Don't put money in that bin until you reconcile with your brother. You see that? You see what He's saying? Don't worry about giving anything. Don't worry about your piety. Don't worry about worshiping. Worry about reconciliation because to Him, this is what's been going on. He's trying to reconcile people together. He's trying to bring us together. He's trying to bring you back to your brother or your sister and, and in one body be connected to Him. And so if we continue in the pettiness, if we continue in, in, in bashing and talking about people for whom Christ died, we are literally tearing apart the historical work of Jesus because we have petty problems. The Gospel demands that we deal with it. That we deal with it in a way that is loving. I am a broken sinner redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You are a broken sinner redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We meet here on level ground. I believe the blood of Jesus absolutely cleanses everything that you've done against me and I let go of it and I want you to know that I do and I love you. doesn't mean you've got to be friends with them. doesn't mean they've got to be besties. It does mean you need to administer the blood of Jesus. That the gospel is just as good for you as it is for them. And if you are not consistently seeking reconciliation, we are outside. We are outside of the will of God for our lives. Yeah. You cannot accept the blood of Jesus over yourself and deny it to another person. You are just rejecting the gospel when you do that. So, as we talk about why did Jesus die, If someone ever asks you that question, I want you to say this. You have to, this is what it says in Galatians. Not so that you can, okay, this is what you need to say. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To bring the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles so they might receive the promised Holy Spirit.
That's what Paul says Jesus died for. The blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. Because it's in the Spirit that we worship together. It's in the Spirit that we confess to one another. It's in the Spirit that we forgive one another. It's in the Spirit that we build one another up in love. So I plead with you. That's what we've got to view this as.